Let us pray once again. Holy Spirit, we, we come now asking for your presence as we open a portion of God's word. Speak to us and may your words be on my mouth, Lord. May you use your word to accomplish the purpose by which you have sent it. Give us light to see. Show us the Father. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. We often say the words uh, like father, like son. It was uh, this young man who stood before a judge to be sentenced for forgery. And the judge had been a friend of the boy's father. Now, the father was also famous because he wrote this book on on the law, by the way. And so the, the judge asked the young man, he says, Do you remember your father, whom you have uh, this day disgraced before everyone? Oh, the son says, I remember him perfectly. The young man answered quietly. When I went to him for advice or companionship, he would say, Run away, boy. I'm busy. Well, my father finished his book. He got famous. But here... I am the product of that father. We all have fathers. Many can recount the failures of our earthly fathers. When, like in the story, we fail to realize there's something more than outward claim to the book of the Bible that needs to be in those fathers. When we're inconsistent with our claims toward God and actually prove that we have a different father than God. We're still are acting like our father, the father of this world. But there's a beauty of our heavenly father, that he, unlike earthly fathers, is a good father, who, think of it, sent his beloved son as our savior. But the unbelieving Jews that we see this morning appear to be children of that heavenly father. They appear to be children of Abraham on the outside. But there's a rottenness inside. There's an unbelief inside. And whoever, friends, claims to believe in God and yet either does not believe in Jesus or doesn't believe the words that Jesus says, he doesn't know God as his Father. You can claim to know the Heavenly Fathers, but here comes one who comes in the name of that Heavenly Father, Jesus Christ the Son. And they proved that they are from another father. The devil. They fail to acknowledge this crucial truth that Jesus is from the Father. Jesus is from the Father. Here's the the sermon that Jesus gives here in at the ending of chapter eight. Uh, chapter five to ten, we we saw, I, I mentioned to you this escalating controversy of Jesus with the religious leaders, with the unbelieving Jews. Uh, We have a mounting unbelief. We have a confrontation with Jesus' enemies that grows. The Jewish leaders are mad. Remember, it all started in chapter 5 when Jesus healed on the Sabbath. You remember the the, uh, drastic departure of the crowds because they didn't like Jesus' sermon. And now there was also a mounting risk of Jesus even coming to Jerusalem in public. There was a price on his head. And last week, we looked at one verse, 12, in chapter 8, where this was crucial statement, I am the light of the world. We we focused and camped on that one verse. Now we do the opposite. We look at the entirety of the uh, Jesus sermon that comes after that statement. In other words, now Jesus has to face the rejection of the light by the, the dark world of the unbelievers. And the, and the religious leaders. There's another, another open debate. This is not the first time. You remember chapter 7. There was the first cycle of debate. And Jesus had to answer the Pharisees. Well now. He continues to. Continue that debate. And he focuses in many ways. In, in similar, um, similar topics. The relation that Jesus has. As the son. With the father. That is the. The. The, the focus of this sermon, and we'll go therefore faster. This is the second teaching cycle. 
which looks more like a boxing match, if we have to be honest. The, the religious leaders are getting more and more upset at Jesus. And Jesus is more and more explicit about his true identity, which sets the Jewish people mad. And he condemns, Jesus condemns the unbelieving Jews. Because they fail to realize that he is from the Father. They have these traditional expectations upon the Messiah as a great deliverer and conqueror. And they will not fit, Jesus will not fit their categories. As he is one with the Father. And so this gospel, the controversy of Jesus with bad religion, is already, you see, a refrain of the gospel. Years ago I was uh, discouraged in a situation and I... I was discouraged by the general state of the church and bad things happening in the church. And so I started, I went to sleep with the, with the gospel. I was listening to the gospel of John in my headphones. And when you listen to the gospel through, the gospel of John, just uh, in one setting, you realize the percentage of Jesus' uh, life. How much of that percentage is this conflict with the religious authorities? This collapse of the true messenger from the Father the Son, Jesus Christ, against the religious people who are claiming to serve the Father, but they hate and persecute the truth. The constant theme of this uh, conflict with the world, darkness and light, we saw last time. The issue is not so much the, the godless masses of unbelievers, atheists. The issue is not so much the Romans and their pagan uh, worldview. The conflict of Jesus as the Son of, of God is actually with the self-proclassing religious class of the leaders in Jerusalem. They claim with, uh, with their mouth to serve God and the Bible. They're regularly going to the temple. They're characterized by fervent prayers, but they hate Jesus. And all oh, Satan loves to use such people, the enemy from within the gates, for evil Purposes And so Jesus has to suffer religious persecution at their hands. Strict opposition among this uh, religious leadership of his days. Which, however, is a tremendous encouragement for us. Whenever we had in the past or are currently uh, reaping the fruits of bad religion. You can see that Jesus himself experienced it. He got bruised by it. He was actually crucified because of it. And he agrees with us that it is a bad thing. And he will come again to uh, judge that and vindicate those who suffer under such persecution. There's uh, again this relationship within Jesus and the Father here in our text that many times are coming. And then there's this statement, I am three times, um, that, that word, that I am that I am in Hebrew, pointing to the Unity that Jesus has with the Father, that essentially is saying, I am God, to the Jewish people, which turns them off. But how do we summarize this long sermon of Jesus in answer to the critics of the Pharisees? Not only that Jesus witnesses that he has come from the Father, this is kind of the, 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 the thread we see in these verses, and therefore he has come to set us free from the sinful and perverse generation. That is in unbelief, that has seen miracle after miracles. But, but ultimately, this sermon leads to the realization that Jesus and the Father are one. That ultimately, Jesus is God. And that is what sets the Jewish people on fire, wanting to kill Jesus. So there's th several things we see here of the relationship of Jesus. How is Jesus coming from the Father? If you have your outline there, the first thing we notice in this sermon is verse 13 to 29, that His witness is from the Father. To answer the, the, the challenge of the Pharisees. Give us a witness of your statement. You claim to be the light of the world. Remember last time. And Jesus says that he has knowledge that comes from the Father. The rejection of Jesus from the Jews shows that they don't know the Father they claim to believe in. Verse 13 to 18 shows us the, the objection of the Pharisees. The critic of the claim of being the light of the world. You've got to give us some proof of your, of your claims, Jesus. They're not simply asking a witness. They're actually mocking Jesus by saying that. It's an insult. In other words, they're insinuating that Jesus was born out of wedlock. Where is your father? They're accusing him of lying. They judge according to appearance. They claim that the, 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 the judgment of Jesus is wrong. 
However, Jesus says, my witness is the Father, the Heavenly Father, which you claim to believe in. He is by my side. And he, he reminds them that according to the Old Testament law, that is enough when you have two witnesses, the Father and the Son. Verse 19, the Jews ask, where is this Father of yours? Imagine a, 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 a mob of youngsters. And they, they go to a child and they threaten him. What is it? Have you lost your mom? That, that is what, what they're doing. They're mocking Jesus. Where is this father of yours? As, he, as if Jesus got some sort of mental disorder. But Jesus replies to them, you don't know my father. You don't know my father. He's claiming to their faces, they don't know the God they so boldly claim to follow. Yes, they are going to the temple. And however, on the last day, God will say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. You see, the way you treat Jesus is a proof that you don't know the Father. If you reject Him, if you, if you mock Him, if you, if you despise His word. Verse 20 opened this break of the sermon. Jesus in the, in the temple treasury. And by this point, He is in serious danger of being killed. Our text says, there's an outright hate by the Jewish uh, unbelie unbelievers toward Jesus. However, Jesus, is, as a witness of the Father... In the fact that he, he wants to accomplish the will of the Father. His sacrifice in particular accomplished the Father's will. Verse 21 to 29. And the rejection of the sacrifice of Christ. Is what ultimately leaves the, the unbelieving Jews. With no other options but to die in their sin. Verse 21 to 23 tells us that Jesus warns the Jews. I'm going back to the Father. But the Jewish people don't know what he's talking about. And he warns them in verse 24, you will die in your sins. Where I go, you cannot come. They are dying under the curse of their own sin because they miss God that is visiting them through Jesus, the Son, from the Father. And they die in their sins like Israel in the wilderness. You know, why Israel died in the wilderness? Because of their unbelief. Well, this generation, it's going to die in the same way. Uh, this connects with what we saw in the previous speech of Jesus about the manna from heaven and dying in their sins like Israel in the wilderness. You forfeit any hope to have your sins forgiven when you reject Christ. Because you don't believe, our text says there in verse 24, I am He. I am He. Now what is this He referring to? The text doesn't say. In fact, uh, that, that I am he, the he is not actually in the original text. So either he's implied that he's the Messiah, and we saw that in chapter 1 of John, verse 20. But this is more implying because of what we'll see at the end of the sermon, the I am. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sin. Isaiah 40 to 55, God calls himself, I am he. And in tune with the, where this sermon is heading, verse 59, 58, before Abraham was, I am, it must refer to the fact that they must embrace, the Jewish people have to embrace that Jesus is actually God. And if they don't do that, they will die in their sins. Uh, verse 25 to 27, the Jews obviously don't get this. To the point that in verse 28, Jesus tells them that he will be lifted up. He's speaking about this cross. The cross will manifest that I am. The cross will show, remember John 3, 14. As the serpent was lifted up, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. That yes, he lived this humble life on earth and yet he has this heavenly origin and a destination toward heaven. I mean, we, we all know stories of failures being turned to success. We, we all know stories of people like uh, Einstein who failed to uh, have good grades at school. We know Walt Disney was fired multiple times because they told him you're not creative enough. Or Van Gogh, the, the Dutch painter, that he never sold one painting in his entire life. Friends, the cross is the quintessential example of how an outward instrument of failure, what looks like a failure, is actually the greatest triumph. That Jesus will be lifted up on the cross in the sense that the, the, the instrument of murder and shame that these unbelieving uh, Jewish leaders want to actually apply on the Savior will actually enhance the honor and the fame of Christ. Because all the nations will be, ex this, this cross of Christ will be an exalted all over the world. 
The Father confirms and demonstrates through the cross that Jesus is indeed the I Am. The sacrifice of Christ upon the cross reveals the nature of Christ as God who steps down in this uh, cursed world and He dies to save lost people. And verse 29 again repeats this connection. There was this uh, pagan guy, Marcus Aurelius, that puts it this way, put from you the belief that I have been wronged and with it will go the feeling. Reject your sense of injury and injury itself disappears. Now, Jesus could have rightly been upset about all this situation, about all the hatred and ultimately about them putting him into death. But he's actually showing them that this will be the greatest triumph of God. Jesus knows that his death will actually be his victory over the darkness that we saw last week. He can triumphantly and confidently respond to the murderers who will still be responsible for their sin. But he's saying this will bring God's glory, even your wickedness. Think about it. In other words, the Father is testifying through Jesus that he has in Christ a beloved son. And in him we saw he is well pleased. But the Father will reject those who reject Jesus. There's no other way that you can get to the Father but through Jesus. Do you know this heavenly Father? That is the question. He has begotten the Son we saw in chapter 1. We often speak of Jesus when we talk about the gospel. And that is nice and good. But the Father is actually central to this whole plan of redemption. Think of it. The Father chose us before the foundation of the world. And then He, he designed with the Son... This plan of redemption to come so that the son will come and agree to come and, and, and take a human uh, body to then save us and be lifted up through the cross all the way to the resurrection, all the way to the ascension back to God. So the father is central to this. But the Pharisee, the Pharisee really thought that Jesus instead was just a lunatic, see, or a liar. They refuse to accept the, the challenge that Jesus sends them. They test Him over and over again, but they remain unwilling to believe whatever they discover by asking questions to Jesus. I mean, their unbelief is profoundly sinful here. You would expect a, such behavior from an atheist who doesn't know anything about the Bible, but not by professing believers in the God of the Bible like here. And Jesus was telling the truth. And he's that clear that no one who claims to love God and hate his brother, hate Christ, works in the darkness against his fellow, uh, fellow neighbor, no matter what he claims about actually knowing God, is failing to realize that this unbelief will lead him to condemnation. The end to which unbelief brings a man or a woman, friend, is the most dreadful thing ever. Think about it. You reject Christ. You reject his gospel. You reject his messengers. This is serious business. So friend, don't look, close any door before you look into Christ, honestly. To have this open mind, realizing that there's no hope left for anyone in a condition like this. Why? Because when you are rejecting the gospel, you are rejecting the cross. You're rejecting the very thing that could give you any hope of true salvation. Friend, to die with your sin unrepented and unatoned for, not covered by the blood of Christ, the only sacrifice that is acceptable to God, it means that you will be dying in your sins. That is the outcome. The sacrifice of the God-man, Jesus Christ, is the, is the only way out. An ultimate disaster befall the persons who has heard the gospel over and over and has refused to believe. And so for all of us, even if we have embraced this gospel and we now want to seek godly lives, we must address sin. And when we address sin in people's life, oh, we will face rejection. We will face persecution. Our message is the problem. They don't like it. There's untold sufferings from the world toward the true believers. And so even if you experience it, even if you experience it from, from the religious uh, entourage like it was for Jesus. Do those people want to serve and defend the institutions they, they, they build in the name of God, but not 
the Father. But there's another element here that we must consider. How does the cross shows us that Jesus is God? That is ultimately what's behind these uh, words of Jesus. You think about the horror of the cross. It's like, how does that show us that Jesus is God? How does the cross become the occasion for God to be glorified, the glorification of Christ? Well, it shows us first that Jesus is God incarnate, that ultimately He accomplishes salvation by being both God and man at the same time. See, if Jesus was simply a man, He could not cover the sins of the world. His cross would not have been able to actually satisfy God's wrath. It is evidence, therefore, of the fact that Jesus is God because the entire mankind now finds this only one gateway to heaven. And they can pass and they can go to heaven only if they pass through the cross. Jesus says, I will be lifted up and I will draw all men to myself. But you cannot benefit from the sacrifice of Jesus. You cannot benefit from his death as a human if you don't also acknowledge that he is also God. God made flesh. That I am that I am, which we're seeing today. He comes to deliver Israel from the deeper slavery of sin. And we'll see in coming points. Yes, Jesus died for sins. But if you don't believe he is God, then you're still dying in your sin. See that? You reject the only way you can be rescued from sin. It's almost like shooting yourself in the foot. That's what the unbelieving Jews are doing here. And many like the crowds here are so taken by the values of the world that they're blind when Christ comes to them, when the message of the gospel is preached to their faces. They're only focused on things of this life and they miss the eternal life. And even if they have, might have some religious Jesus that they have embraced mentally, a human Jesus we could say, but he's unable to truly cover their sins. He's not divine. But you see, their response to Jesus determines their ultimate destiny. That is the same for each and every one of us. And look at the second point of this relationship between the Son and the, and the Father. That Jesus has the freedom that the Father has. Verse 30 to 38. That like the Father, the Word of Christ is able to set people free. That is the beauty of our text. Verse 30, there's still opposition, but some are believing Jesus. However, you know from past weeks that sometime there's something called spurious faith. And so Jesus has to kind of put their faith to the test here in verse 31. He says, if you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples. In other words, yes, they have said they want to believe in Jesus, unlike the, the, the Jewish unbelievers, but they have to continue they have to remain and holding fast to the Word of God. In other words, the Word of God has to find home in their hearts. And now, how does that happen? They start to obey. They start to live according to the Word of God. They are faithful to the Word, the teachings of Christ. They live out the teaching of Christ in their daily life. The full scope of the Word of God. You see, that is more than mental faith right there. That you say, okay, I believe Jesus is from God and therefore I'm saved. No. You have to respond to the moral implications of God's word for your life. That it's a different thing. You, it, it's something that becomes personal. It's something, it's like the word becoming life changing in your life and transformative. When the word of God brings fruit, because God told us that by their fruit we shall know them. That there are, there's now a fruit of a, of a complete transformed life. And that being makes you truly his disciple. That is a warning. There is a difference between a true and false disciple in the Word of God taking deep roots in their life and flourishing in the personal, wholehearted obedience of the person who has received the Word of God. That he keeps now the Word of God. And that, that, that gives also the promise of Jesus. You shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. What, what does it look to know the truth? It implies that now you are experiencing for yourself the truth of God's word. You're not merely understanding what it says. But you commit yourself personally to the one who is the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus Christ. That is a whole different thing. There is a truth also of a relationship here. You know Jesus for who he is. Experientially, you know the truth about the person. But also Christ himself. I mean... 
you realize that he is, there's nothing truth, uh, uh, twisted in Christ. There's nothing twisted in the word of God. There's no lies. There's no mischief. There's wo- no working in the dark against the righteous because that's what the unbelieving Jews are doing against Jesus. And then that, that truth is able to make you free, friends, to set you free, to release you from, from, from a condition of slavery. And what is that slavery? It's the bondage of sin. He sets you free to become the kind of person that God had created you to be. Michael Sattler was an Anabaptist during the Reformation. He was reading this verse, and he was there still in the monastery. He was still in the dark, but he read this verse over and over again. The truth shall set you free. And then he be converted, he got baptized, and he started to be persecuted. That is what the truth does. You, you hear the word of God, and, and, and there's a slavery. Verse 35 tells us there's this analogy of slavery that you now need to be adopted by the Heavenly Father to become a true child of the Father delivered from some kind of slavery. And, and that is through the Son. The Father has a Son, Jesus Christ. And that Son is, is, is a manager over the entire household. And now you, 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 you come out of a slavery and He adopts you into the family. He releases you from the slavery. Verse 36. If the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. In other words, if you're truly in Christ, He will make you truly and unquestionably free. No longer slave. Through and through. That true freedom, unlike what our society tells us, true freedom is not doing whatever you want. That is slavery. And you see that everywhere. Well, I'm free. I'm just doing whatever I want. No. Freedom in the scripture is the privilege of doing what is right. That is true freedom. True liberty. You think about our country. was founded about this concept of liberty. Once we used to call this land the land of the free, do we? But we have forgotten what, what liberty is. We think it's, it's uh, this, uh, this freedom to destroy yourself under the slavery of sin. No, instead it's the freedom to obey God. And when you obey God, you reap the fruits of joy from the Father. The, the Father has delight in those who are free. And He delivers us from the tyranny of sin. That is the ultimate slavery. But you see, unlike the Father, these Jews are still slaves of sin. And they don't get it. They don't get it. They're, they're still slaves of sin and they cannot claim to have God as their father at the same time. They're, you have to be truly adopted in the family of God here. And they don't have that. Verse 33. What do they do? Oh, Jesus. We are children of Abraham. They're boasting about being Abraham's seed as Jewish people, obviously. We are with father Abraham. We are his sons. So therefore, we need no deliverance. We need some background to understand this because the controversy in previous sermons was again with uh, Father Moses. Okay, He delivered God's people from the slavery in Egypt. The outward physical slavery. Okay, But there's another Pharaoh. There's another tyranny that is far greater that this Jewish people needs to be freed from. Their sin. And they're slave of it. They don't realize the bondage in their self-righteousness. They think, I, I am a free man. I don't need any, I, I was never lost. That's what they're saying to Jesus. I was always free. Why? Because they understand freedom to refer to political freedom here. Uh, obviously, that, that's not true either because you look at the Romans. By this time, they're slave of Rome. Either way, they're not free as they claim to be. Verse 34, Jesus reveals now their true slavery, sin. It's not a national slavery. It's not a political slavery. It's a slavery to sin. And Romans 6, verse 16 to 25, expound what that looked like. That friend, you cannot be both. You are either a slave of sin, you are under the power of sin, and you obey sin as is your master. And you are unable on your own to obey God. Or you, the Son sets you free. He releases the chains. And now you become what? Slave of righteousness. God makes you actually able to obey and the unbelieving Jews here are addicted to sin. They're continuing in sin. They're, they spend days living in sin. There's an habitual life. And, and when you are under that bondage that you have tried on your own to clean yourself up, you're proving that you're a slave of sin. And verse 37, it dismantled their false hope of being Abraham's seed. Why? Because they have a murderous spirit. 
they reject the word of God that comes to them through Jesus Christ. Uh, it's almost as if Jesus is saying, the word of God is making no progress in you. That all of that is showing they have a different father. Richard Sibbs, a Puritan, once said, it is the greatest bondage in the world to have most freedom in ill. That is ultimately the slavery to sin. That in harmony with the Father, Jesus Christ the Son has the ability through the Word of God, through Jesus' words, to set you free from your slavery of sin. And that is what the Jewish Pharisees do not get. Israel until now lived in this theocratic relation in the Old Testament under this Father in heaven. However, they, they, they fail to realize here that, that there's a dimension, an implication for their true spiritual sonship. That if you are a true child of God, you obey His words. You honor the Son that the Father sends. They, they, they need to be adopted in, in God's family first and to be released from the chains of sin. That's what they don't realize. That opens the door to be a true child of God. Not everyone in this earth is a child of God, friends. I don't know, you, you may have heard this mantra, but that is not the case from these verses. When you let what Jesus say control your actions, everything you do, then you become a slave of righteousness. The first step, even before you can understand the need of your freedom, is to realize through the gospel that you are in a condition of slavery from which you need to be made free first. We saw in the Baptist catechism that we're going through every Wednesday night, that there's some, something called as original sin. That from birth, we all come into this world and sin controls our nature. Sin controls and dominates and dictates our action. We, by nature, nobody has to tell us this, okay? We live under the mastery of sin. And Jesus now has to break the power of sin upon your life. Now, for someone of us, this may look from, uh, like a blatant addiction. Where you have lived in a, in, 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 in a slavery of uh, alcohol or pornography or drugs or drunkenness, adultery or theft. And now Christ comes and he breaks the chain of the power of sin. And now you're able to repent of that sin. Others, it's a more subtle slavery. And, and, and that's where self-righteousness comes in, like the Pharisees. That they think they're pretty good. They go to church, they're doing things, but you are still unable to control your, let's say, temper. You harbor hatred for other people. You are completely overcome by this sin and you're not able to actually turn away from it. Your life is dominated by this. And you're unable to turn away from sin. See, the Jewish people boasted of descending from Abraham. But they actually acted like more Ishmael. The slave-born Ishmael. Abraham's seeds are those who have Abraham's faith. And Abraham's faith brings fruits See, you cannot be a Christian from the crib. You can even go to church every Sunday, have a nice clothes. You live in the land of the free. That doesn't make you free from slavery of sin. All of us, friends, from our birth, we have these invisible chains. That we are tied to sin. And that power has to be broken. And it can only be broken by Christ. I, I feel that the, the greatest de deception here in the South... You look at the past 50 years, the entire generation of churchgoers, eh? you tell them that they're Christians because they go to church. You tell them they're Christians because they answered an altar call, but then they still live in the slavery of sin. Or they become self-righteous by keeping their natural man under the cloth. No, they have to first open their eyes to their pride. This is pride. That they are still mastered by sin and they need to be delivered. And then and only then the slave can now look with desperate need to a deliverance. Who shall deliver me from this body of death? Who shall give me deliverance and freedom that Christ alone can provide? That is when the cross breaks our chains. That his perfect sacrifice, his blood like the lamb in the doorpost was able to deliver us not from a physical slavery from Egypt, but from the tyranny of sin. And the promise here in our text, friends, is that Christ can make you free indeed. That this freedom is noticeable. You're free from falling continuously into sin. You're free from self-deception. 
You're free from Satan's grip over your life. You are now free to follow God through the truth of Scripture. And that truth is what sets you free. The truth alone. Truth that is unadulterated. A truth that doesn't need anything outside of itself to be true. That what, that's what breaks the, the chain of sin. Through His blood that was shed on the cross. And also through His resurrection. That when Jesus Christ overcomes death and loosens the chains of death. That's the power the tyranny of sin over the believer is gone forever. Only by faith and trusting your life on this perfect work of Christ. Friend, no matter how, how long you, you've, you've been under this slavery to sin, no matter how dark as it gets, when Jesus Christ frees you, He frees you indeed. All that entangled you until now is gone. Otherwise, like the unbelieving Jews here, you face the, the next point, third point, the estrangement that Jesus has from their father, the father of these uh, unbelieving Jews and the Jewish leaders in particular. Who is the father of, of these people? The devil. I mean, that's strong words. Verse 39 to 50 are our text. What we see here is that like the devil, the unbelieving Jews are murderers. That is serious charge, okay? They hate, they desire to kill Jesus. That not only shows that they're not children of Abraham, not only shows that God is not their father, that they actually hate the father they claim to worship every time they come to the temple. They, they think that, 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 that is enough to make them children of, of Abraham. No, their father is the devil. That, that is serious stuff. See, the Jews think that Jesus is telling them they're bastard children, children of fornication. That's what ultimately... Their response here is, the, is showing. But what they are is even worse than that. They are of the father, the devil. That like the devil, the unbelieving Jews are liars. Verse 43, they are unable to listen to the truth. And so in verse 44, Jesus insults them. Yes, he insults the, their pride. He no longer keeps a secret what he knew already. And he had given hint in the, in the in earlier parts of the gospel. Now he blatantly tells them to their faces, you are your, of your father, the devil. He brings all their religious boasting to an end. You probably saw when, you know, months ago there were things in, in TV. And there was this uh, Oscar. They were giving an Oscar. A guy got slapped in the face in front of the whole crowd. That's pretty much what... Jesus is doing, rightfully slapping the Pharisees in their face with his words. Unmasking their true colors. There will be no greater insult to the devout temple goers and priests in the temple. The religious leaders. Yes, friends, little devils can lie even behind the religious cloth. Satan will love to do that. But they are liars and murderers like the devil. Verse 45 continues. They have no ground to accuse Jesus... Because Jesus is innocent and he's truthful and yet they want to kill him like the devil. Jesus is the only one who kept the whole law. He was perfect. He was innocent. But these, we could call them bastard childrens, they jealously hate the son, Jesus Christ. And yet Jesus Christ gives his life to save orphan children, to bring them back to the father. Those who will believe. Verse 47, there's an indictment there. He who is of God hears God's word. That is why you, are, you cannot hear my word because you're not from God. That means that if you belong to God, what, what you expect from every true child of God, that he will listen gladly to the word of God. To what God has to say in the Bible. But the reason that the unbelieving Jews do not hear the words, they keep rejecting the words of Christ, is because they themselves are not of God. Neither they are in harmony with God, nor are they on God's side as they pretend to be. Let alone belonging to God as through children of the Father. They don't belong to God, but to the devil. Friend, there's no middle ground here. You reject God's word, it proves that you are not God's children. They are also like the devil in the fact that they slander the Savior. Verse 48 to 50, obviously, things get out of control. It's a chaos here. Shouts and Jesus starts to insult Jesus. I mean, remember 
what I told you in chapter 4, calling someone a Samaritan meant a bad word. But not only that, they call him even demon-possessed. Jesus, you are demon-possessed. Other gospels describe this as actually as the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. When you attribute to the, 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 to the devil the work of God. And Jesus just told you, your father is the devil. In, in other words, you are for forfeiting any hope of your forgiveness. Because you are hindering and you're dishonoring the son who actually honors the father. And you will be judged by the father. There was uh, various writers who once commented on the Pharisees. Pharisees had heaven in their tongue, but earth continually at their fingers. They had many prayers, oh yes, but never the fewer sins. And so Jesus is right to tell them to their faces, they're none other than the son of the devil. I mean, despite the religious upbringing, anyone who rejects God's word for a lie and persecutes two true servants of God, hating them and, 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 and wanting to kill them, is proving that he or she is not a child of God, but a son of the devil. What we see here in the Pharisees are wolves in sheep clothing. See, the difference between Christ, the difference between true believers on the one side and the ungodly, ignorant, self-righteous, natural man could not be greater than here. Yes, they pretend to belong to God, but actually they're doing the will of the devil. They pretend to keep the traditions and, the, and, and defend the, the spiritual customs that they were doing in the temple. But that became their ruin under the verdict of truth when Christ came to visit them. Friends, what we see here is that no one is more neutral in this world. Remember the story we began with. You are son and daughter of whoever you imitate. And in that case, there was a bad father and the son was just acting like that. Either you're a child of this world, a child of the devil, or a child of God. And not everyone is born into a condition of being a child of God. Everyone by birth actually is a child of Satan. You follow the guidance of the devil. You are under his bondage. Yes, you can boast in outward things. Uh, I have circumcision. I have baptism. I have a family of Christians. I have church membership. I have kept the traditions. I even go to church. Friends, no one is justified before God because you tried to be a good person and you went to church. Or even you can have a patriotic allegiance to America. But if all of that is void of true faith, if all of that is mixed with all sort of malicious intents and robbery, lies, questioning and rejecting God's word, those are all characteristics of the devil. And you are imitating your father. You see how traditionalism, ritualism, becomes completely pointless before God. Because God can see through our surface claim of devotions. Anyone who claims to be a Christian, but he ignores or disobey the Bible's clear teaching on anything is not a child of God. If truly these were children of God, they would not have acted as they did toward Christ. They would not have acted toward the prophets in the Old Testament like they did. The true mark of spiritual sonship, that you are actually a child of the Heavenly Father is genuine love for God that reflects in genuine love for your neighbor. And that is what the Pharisees lacked with all their religion. A true Jew is one who is inwardly circumcised by being born again. And these Jews had the sign, but they did not believe. When you belong to God, you hear, obey the word of God. And if that's not the case, you don't belong to God. As certain as night follows the day. That's why some denomination, I particularly think of the Presbyterians. They like their version of covenant theology and the inclusion of children of believers in the covenant as children of Abraham. What they fail to realize, there's a, there's a radical change in the new covenant here. That now your descent is outclassed by, your physical descent is completely bypassed by the, the faith that you have that then proves itself in through a, 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 a new life, transformed life. And that's far more important than outward belonging to a church. It is not a bloodline, but a spiritual change that makes you part of and become a true member of God's universal church. John the Baptist's warning, you remember in chapter 1, he said this to the Pharisees, God can make children of Abraham eat of it out of stones. 
And he was warning them, you must repent before getting baptized. Or, or getting baptized will be absolutely pointless for you. No pedigrees is going to give you access to heaven. You need to be freed from your slavery to sin first. And what I want to notice is also how Jesus is not afraid to tell the truth. I mean, he, he goes to the religious leaders and says, you are of the father, your father the devil. This is offensive. Today we will consider that offensive language. Especially when it's directed toward religious leaders. But they were hypocrites. Their claim to devotion to God was pointless. I mean, I wonder what Jesus would say. I mean, many churches in our country today, if he were to come, we could consider this an insult. But it shouldn't surprise. Because this is the truth. Either, you're either a child of God or a child of the devil. And if your life is still full of lies and murderous spirit and rebellion against God's word, you know what Jesus calls you. The father is the devil. But this is not at the end of Jesus' sermon. Let's look at the climax, the, the peak of his claims at the end of our text. Verse 51 to 59. The fact that Jesus is one with the father. I mean, we're getting deeper here, okay? Like the father, Jesus, first of all, we notice, can give eternal life. The promise of... Uh, uh, verse 51, if anyone keeps his word, which is more than mental assent, when you keep God's word, is, is that kind of faith that now leads you to observing the teachings of Christ, and by extension, the entire Bible, and you now live in accordance with the message that is found in Scripture. And that person shall never see death. That is the promise. How can it be? He shall never see death. I mean, only Enoch did not see death, but he was raptured into heaven. Psalm 89 says, What man can live and not see death? But remember this double meaning that John in the gospel several times has shown us. Yes, the believer, the believer will still physically die, but he will live forever. That is the promise. That he, in fact, at salvation, when you come to Christ, you already passed from death to life. We saw that in chapter 5, verse 24. The moment you truly believed in Christ, eternal life has already started in your heart. And you're able now to look to death in the face with the hope of a life eternal with the Heavenly Father after death. You don't even know anymore what it means to die. You live forever. And verse 52, now the Jews obviously misunderstand. They thought that Jesus meant, oh, you're never going to physically die. Well, he said, see death, not taste death. He meant a future eternity where death will be no more. That's what he meant. There's a play on word. And these self-professing Jews with all their pointless, tricky questions are not getting it because they don't have the Holy Spirit in them. They're dishonoring the Son and they claim to honor, but they're lying about God. And verse 56 now come. To Abraham, again, he connect, Jesus connects to the statement about Abraham. A Abraham actually rejoiced to see my day. You think that Abraham is on your side? You're children of Abraham? Well, Abraham rejoiced to see the day of Christ. How did, how did Abraham knew about Christ? Jesus already existed at, at the time of Abraham. Yes, we'll see. By the claim, before Abraham was, I am. But Abraham's faith was a jubilant faith, rejoicing... At the thought of Christ. That's what Jesus is saying. He, he looked, he, Abraham looks as it were. He was looking through the corridors of time. The corridors of, of history. And he, wa he was seeing in a dimly and shadow way. The coming of Christ into the flesh. He saw it and was glad. He rejoiced at the prospect. Father Abraham. How did he do that? Think about the joy that Father Abraham had when he saw the ram caught in the bush in Genesis. And realizes that when he says those words, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. That is uh, the sacrifice of the son will come to actually, in place of his own beloved son Isaac. He had a joy right there in knowing that Isaac was spared because God's beloved son, Jesus Christ, was going to be the true lamb who will be sacrificed in their place. And, and, and as, as shady and shadowy as, as dimly he saw that, he rejoiced. But these uh, professing Jews are not. 
But ultimately, like the Father, Jesus is God. He's the I Am. Verse 57, the Jews uh, misunderstand the statement as if Jesus was actually physically present on, at the time of Abraham. Before he came in the flesh, yes, he existed forever. But the point is verse 58, the final climax of this entire sermon. The unqualified words of Jesus, which I want to say are the most powerful words ever uttered by a human being. Which we know by the reaction of the Jews, it sets them on fire. He says, most are surely. And whatever that word is used is, there's no way around what Jesus is about to say. Amen, amen. Truly, truly. You may not like this word, you may criticize it, but it remains true nevertheless. Before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was even existed or born, the son existed even before that, eternally, timelessly. I am, I was, and ever will continue to be. Before Abraham was even born, the I am, Exodus 3.14, I was there. The son himself is the I am. Now, verse 59 tells us by the reaction of the Jews that they clearly understood the, 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 the implication of these words. That Jesus was making himself equal with God. And that, for them, was a blasphemy worthy of stoning. However, the Jewish people are the real blasphemers in the story, obviously. That they addressed the Lord with such slanderous language. They despised him. They, they sent threats of murderers. But Jesus protected miraculously. He goes through the midst of the crowd because the hour of death had not yet come. So, who was Jesus? Who was Jesus? Well, by his name, Yeshua, we know that he meant God saves, right? And literally, what Yeshua means in Hebrew is what we see here in these words of, of the final verse of 58. I am. Jesus is God. And therefore, Judaism without Jesus remains a lifeless shell. Not only Jesus was foreshadowed in the Old Testament, Abraham, but more, he, more clearly now we come into the New Testament, we come to John chapter 8, and Jesus revealed clearly his deity, that he is God, and that is an inescapable truth without which every religious person will die in their sin. We pray today for all the Jews in Israel, obviously who are since yesterday facing a war. But what, what do we pray for? That they may see the Messiah. They may see Christ. That there's a beautiful aspect of Jesus' words here about the Old Testament, Abraham and Jesus. The process by which God reveals himself in the scripture progressively and in harmony. And that there's no true different gods. That there's no Old Testament, New Testament and uh, two different uh, things completely. There's no, there's no connection. Jesus existed before he was born. The Old Testament foreshadowed Christ so many times. It, it is almost as if the gospel was a, announced in the Old Testament. Yes, it was still a shadow in the case of Abraham. But Jesus, who is the same eternal God, Yahweh, is the God of the living and of the dead, was in the Old Testament. And Abraham, all those who show the same faith of Abraham, uh, and those who are also justified by faith in Christ, they shall never see death. They, they will live eternally with God. And so Jesus, therefore, yes, is greater than Abraham because he is God on the flesh. Abraham, we could say, was placing his faith in the coming sacrifice of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. The coming Messiah, Savior, will die for the sins of Abraham and all the true spiritual descendants of Abraham who will put their faith in Christ as their Savior. That is the, the, the sense of those words. That those who believe in Jesus are only those who are the true legitimate children of Abraham. Not outwardly, but inwardly. More importantly, I think by now, we've gone through the Gospel of John. Now we're, we're finishing chapter 8. Since chapter 1, we saw over and over again. You go and listen to the messages. I mean, it becomes undeniable that Jesus is indeed and undeniably, unquestionably God. That's what John wants you to see. It couldn't be more clear. The Son was, in, was, is, and now will be forever God. 
And that demands, friends, from every creature under heaven that we bow and worship the eternal Son of God in submission to His Word. That's how we respond to His Word. So how will you respond to the Son of God? Will you hate? Will you reject based on your misguided zeal? Or you will humble yourself and embrace Him as God who eternally existed. And to truly believe in in, in the Lord Jesus implies now you identify Him as one with God too. That the whole essence of God belongs to the Son just as it belongs to the Father. That He is one in essence with the Father. And after Jesus claims today, it remains extremely inconsistent for anyone to just believe that Jesus was just a good man. It's a good teacher. Denying what we see here, that he, he is claiming to be God. He always existed. He became flesh for the specific purpose to save humanity and accomplish the will of the Father. So, how do we conclude this long sermon of chapter 8? Things are getting harder and harder for the Son. We saw that persecution is rising and they get even harder for any true follower of Jesus when in the face of the darkness against the true light starts to exposing that sin that we saw last time. The fact that Jesus went through this opposition from religious leaders, I want you to see is actually our encouragement that he knows, he agrees like you and I, that is absolutely and unforgivably wrong. That is the glorious encouragement for those who uh, are true believers and, uh, and they face insults that are coming stronger and stronger and persecution. You wait until the cross. But the ball of persecution is already set in motions here. But here's how the supposed children of Abraham treated the Son of God. The Father sent the Son. They made fun of Him. They called Him names. They refused to listen to His word. They were ignorant of their slavery to sin. They were boasting of their heritage, but they will only die in their unpardonable sin of blaspheming against the the, the Holy Spirit by attributing God's work to the devil, whereas they themselves are children of the devil. How can they keep claim to love the Father when they do such thing to the Son? They are children of Satan, friends, and that is a warning for you and I. It proves they don't know the Father they claim to believe in. Just as the Father is called the I Am, however... The Son is I Am. That ultimately is God. He has come to earth. He walks right before them. The Son of God. And if we fail to worship, if we fail to obey Him and His word, we have no true access to the Father, no matter our religious claim. So let me say a few words here to the fathers in our room. I mean, we talked about the Father of God and the reason some people have a hard time appreciating this Father-Son relationship is because we... We had earthly fathers that failed. Ultimately, we're sinful. And we Christian fathers have a great responsibility. We're supposed to reflect the Heavenly Father. You teach your children. You, you seek to be a good example to them. You, at times, even have to discipline them. You pray for their salvation. But again, this should point to them the dim reflection of the, of the Father, of the Heavenly Father, the beautiful relationship between the Father and the Son, the adoption. I mean, otherwise, the... Alternative is you remain in a child of the devil. You imitate the devil like the religious unbelieving Jews. You don't, you don't want to be in their step and remain in this religious bondage. No, you, you have to believe. You have to submit to the, the better son that grants you the better future in a better world without any more darkness in heaven. And now in this life, it sets you free from the chains of sin. And like Abraham, you can rejoice in such a day. Because you, you, you'll see Jesus face to face, me and, I, me and I, you and I, when we get to heaven, we'll see Jesus face to face. So are, are the ways in which we look at the church, sadly, we can resemble the religious Jews. And there's, there's a lot of hypocrisy. There's a lot of reciting of ancestry and tradition. You can defend outwardly what is good and spiritual, but you know little, you know nothing of this intimate relationship with the Heavenly Father. You're not even able to hear the call of God's word. That is a, a call and an indictment for any form of Christianity that we must repent from. It actually evidence we don't really know who God is. So let us take this call, take off the mantle worn out by the temple leadership of Jerusalem. Because I'm telling you, otherwise we will become like a synagogue of Satan. 
That's what Paul uses in Revelations, in the eyes of God, when a church is void of that true relationship and recognition of the Father through the Son. The wretched religious zealots, without knowledge of the Son, that later will, in the Gospel, Jesus will tell them, I am the Father, I'm one. And if this is so, I don't think anyone else in the world, friends, will be greater in greater trouble than these religious leaders. God-haters. Yes, religious, but still God-haters. Sons of the devil. And so beware of their slavery. Beware of that. And find freedom in the Son, so that He may adopt you into His family. So He may release you from the chains of sin by the love of the Father. Let us pray. God, we thank You.